Hi everyone, welcome to our Yams and Yuka bonus episode. I'm Kamara, one of your co-hosts, and I just wanted to speak to you all before the episode gets started. Now, a fun fact about the show you're about to hear is that it's actually our pilot episode, so the very first one that we recorded. When Heather first came to me with the idea for Yams and Yuka, once we had everything prepared, we asked my sister, Talia Gray, if she'd record the pilot with us. Thankfully, she said yes, and the interview was great. However, because we didn't quite know what we were doing yet, the audio quality was not so good. We didn't want you to miss out on such a fantastic interview, so we decided to share it with you anyway. So please excuse the audio quality. So, welcome to our bonus episode. Enjoy the show! Welcome to the Yams and Yuka podcast, where we explore the fabric of Black identity through culture, food, art, life experiences and more, sharing the stories of international creatives. With the show, we hope to connect with fellow creatives from across the African diaspora, amplify their voices, and create a tapestry of interconnected experiences. First, let us introduce ourselves. Hi everyone, I'm Heather Benson originally from Atlanta, Georgia in the States, and now living in London, England. I'm a dance artist, lecturer, and creative producer. Hi, I'm Kamara. I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and now I also live in London, and I'm a dance artist, teacher, choreographer, and I'm the artistic director of Art to Youth Dance. All right, welcome to the table, everyone. I'm excited to see what's on the menu for today's discussion. Let's get into it. With everything that's going on in the world and how people are being treated because of race, this is nothing new. It's been going on for centuries. <laughs> and then, you know, with social media, everything's just so much more visible. The discrimination and the injustice and the inequity, specifically for Black people and, of course, for people of color. So as you're navigating the world and just in your own life experiences, what does it mean to you to be seen? Uh, that's an interesting question, which I've been thinking about. To be seen means that your points of view and your opinions are acknowledged. Other people don't really have to agree with you, but they have to show some kind of understanding of where you're coming from. And that is important. So I guess a level of empathy and acknowledgement, really. How about for you? I can agree. Acknowledgement is really, really important. What stands out for me is when I see that the differences are acknowledged or that my personal experience in communities or workspaces is acknowledged. But sometimes that's just not enough because it's like, okay, we acknowledge it, but then there's not a change yeah. behavior. Mm-hmm. For me to really feel seen, there's an actual action yeah. behind that. And I don't continue to experience the same discrimination or difference in how I'm allowed to walk and be in life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not even just the workplace with the media being so in our face. And that also being a big part of the narrative about being Black. Think about those commercials that you see that go viral from different Asian companies Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's like a washing detergent brand and it's a person in Blackface. They've used the soap and then all of a sudden they're white or now you're clean. Right. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) 
even in entertainment and what is celebrated. So when you see a different narrative or that change in the action and behavior really tells me when I'm being seen. What you're really seeing is kind of representation, which Mm -hmm. absolutely I would agree with that. That's important too. And representation across a range of things, no playing towards stereotypes so that there are a range of different things to be seen. I like what you said about the action, because that is true. Sometimes people can just smile and nod and go, "Mm -hmm, yeah, oh, wow, like I understand. And then they carry on in the same way. So, And I think that's what I meant by having some empathy. With empathy comes action. So I would agree with what you said there. Absolutely. Representation is a big part of being seen. Like, do you belong? Are you part of normal? Yeah. And are you valued as well? Yeah. In a way that's not exploitation or ticking the box. Right. Yes. Have you been included for genuine reasons? If you're talking about advertising, has the black person been put in there as a genuine reason? Or does it look like they're trying to be on trend by having one black person and one of every race in the video or something like that? Right. So for you personally, has there been a moment in living and working in the UK where you felt like you were really seen and it not be from your own community? My biggest is the dance industry and looking at dance schools. So when I look at some dance colleges and I see that they make a positive effort to, not even a positive effort, that it is really part of their normal life by the non-Black teachers to include diverse curriculums, to treat all of the students of different ethnic backgrounds equally. Like, you genuinely know that that's how they treat everybody. Because I have seen the opposite, where it's, I I guess that's the unconscious bias that comes out. I've seen when there are Black students in a dance production and they're the one at the back, in the middle, always at the back. And I think that's an unconscious thing. I have been fortunate to work in environments where the non-black staff are genuinely inclusive and you can see it across all factors so the teachers the curriculum the students the level of attention the students are given and the opportunities for leadership that the students are given is really equal that to me is being seen I've been in those situations in, in particular colleges that I've taught at. So I know it's it's possible and, and not everybody's bad and not everyone's doing the wrong thing. There are a lot of organizations doing the right thing, but it's definitely across the board. It has to come from the top. It can't just be something that people are thinking about or people have heard about or a tick box like you mentioned. I mean, definitely. It sounds like we both agree that feeling seen is really about genuine representation or some kind of change in action. Well, let's take a break, and when we come back, we will hear more about this topic of visibility from our guest. We'll be right back. Let's introduce our guest for today's meal. We have Talia Gray joining us. Before she comes to the virtual table, I'll share a little bit about her. Talia Gray is the founder of Sheer Chemistry, an empowering hosiery brand specializing in tights for women of all shades of brown. Born in Australia of Jamaican heritage, she's passionate about challenging traditional beauty standards and helping women reach their potential. Before starting Sheer Chemistry, Talia graduated from the University of Birmingham 
with a degree in international business, began her career in New York working in HR for some of the world's largest organizations, including UBS, Morgan Stanley, and Linklaters. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us today, Talia. We're excited to have the chance to speak with you. You also happen to be my sister. Aren't I lucky? You are lucky, and we're lucky to have you here today. So we'd like to thank you for joining us for our virtual meal. It's so great to join you. Welcome. So we're going to jump right in, getting to know a little bit more about you. You've lived in Sydney, New York. I'm seeing you've lived in Santa Maria in Brazil. That's amazing. And now you're in London. And of course, your family is Jamaican heritage. So with all of those experiences and backgrounds, tell me, where is home for you? Yeah, I always find this such a layered question. But the short answer is home is London right now. Mm. (laughs) I guess that's because, you know, we've been here for coming up to 18 years, I think. And most of my family are here. My sister, well, Kamara, you are here. <laughs> my brother's here. My mom's here. And then the extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, they're all here. So I think in coming to London when I was 15, there was that sense of family that makes London always a home station for me. However, I guess I've called many other places home, including Sydney, Australia, and I've also called Santa Maria, Brazil home, and I've called New York City home. But I think where my heart is right now, it's definitely London. Although I think I might wonder with the years, London will always be my base. Mm, Nice. Very nice. So, of course, when you're thinking of home, you have those experiences that really touch your heart. For me, when I think about home, it's about the food. And of course, we're yeah. at the dinner table now or lunch table. I don't know what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> so what's one of your favorite foods from home? One of my favorite foods would definitely be ackee and saltfish. Mm. For those people who don't know, it's a Jamaican dish and ackee is a fruit, but it has the consistency and look of like scrambled eggs. It's a savory dish which is cooked with saltfish normally like fried dumplings some onions and tomatoes and a lot of spices Mm. but why this most reminds me of home is because my mum always cooks it on Christmas morning it's always like a nostalgic warm and fuzzy feel when I think of ackee and saltfish and it's normally in the presence of my family at Christmas. I haven't a second, I wouldn't call it dish, but a food item that I love and Kamara will know about this. It's actually a Lebanese bread. It's called Zata. I must have been about three or four years old. There was a boy that I went to preschool with. His name was Army and his family was Lebanese. They had a Lebanese bakery and there was a particular day of the week. His parents would bring in this Lebanese bread and it has like herbs and spices and it's just beautiful and it has such a distinct smell. Later on in life, when I was about 14, we were living in this Lebanese neighborhood and I kept on smelling the smell and it would make me think of the days of preschool, (laughs) which is so crazy. But eventually I I tried it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the bread. So um, 
even though it's a Lebanese bread, it reminds me of the neighborhood that we lived in Sydney. And it reminds me of the memories of my childhood and just the magical experience that I had when I bite into this amazing goodness. And of course, I can find it in London. I didn't know what it was called until very recently. Um, but yeah, I, I just love it. And it just reminds me of home and home being my other home, Sydney. Yeah, it's amazing how smells can do that. And mm. and they just really bring back that feeling and all those like those warm, fuzzy experiences and distinct mm-hmm. special memories. Yeah, it's crazy that the, the memory goes back uh, so far as like preschool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like it's part of your DNA in a way. It is. Yeah, weirdly. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I can barely remember last week. But, um, <laughs> food will do that to take you back to places and people as well because you remembered your friend's name and everything. I know, but I don't think I would have remembered without the presence of food. Yeah. 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 Oh, gosh. So you probably have more food memories from your journeys around the world. How did you end up in all of the many cities that you've lived in? So, yeah, as I mentioned, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. And so at the age of 15, we came to London. And that was really what my mum calls a a trip to broaden our horizons. So at the at the time, we'd spent our whole lives in Sydney and being of Jamaican heritage, we didn't have extended family living there and it was only my granddad and auntie who'd come to visit us so uh, we'd never met any other family members apart from those two so she thought it was really important for us to explore our heritage and our family roots and so we came to London which was supposed to be for a year of broadening our horizons, they say in inverted commas, <laughs> for 18 years, they're still here. <laughs> it's been a great experience in terms of just connecting with our Jamaican heritage, our Black heritage, and just really immersing ourselves in the culture, which although we had, you know, a community of um, West Indians in Sydney, there weren't as many Black people as there are here. And I think that's that's a positive thing in terms of exploring my identity at the time. So I came here at, at 15 and finished my schooling here. I guess I'm always someone who likes to explore and I don't like to sit still for too long. So when it came to the time to apply for university, I was like, I'm so done with London. This is like <laughs> two, three, four years in. And so I wanted to explore a new city. I ended up at Birmingham University. And what drew me to there is at the time I I knew I wanted to study business and I knew I wanted to travel. So I studied international business because it gave me the opportunity to spend a compulsory year abroad. And so I, at the time, I was really fascinated with South America and um, for that reason, I started learning Spanish in my first year um, to get me ready for the third year when I would go abroad. But I, my year abroad was on the back of the financial crisis of 2008. So I was supposed to go in 2008. 
But because of the, the global financial crisis, it was really hard to find an internship, which is what I wanted to do. So I was looking everywhere and it turned into a global search. And um, I eventually got a job way past the, the the date that I was supposed to go, which was in September. I remember I had my head of the course calling me asking me where where am I going what am I doing because I, I might have to forfeit the year because I hadn't confirmed a placement as of September mm. and so the, it was quite a nerve-wracking experience because I was actually risking having to just do just work for the year but I was so I had such conviction that this was going to happen and so the my cutoff date to be included for that academic year was I think the first week of December and I think it was on December the 1st that I got my offer letter for a job in Brazil doing a marketing placement at an English language school so I literally just made it on time to be included for that year nice like just <laughs> and then I left in January and the funny thing about going to Brazil is, as I, as I mentioned, I was learning Spanish. Right. <laughs> <Portuguese>. <laughs> right. Which they don't uh, speak in Brazil. The only South American country that they don't speak Spanish. I was like, I'm screwed. <laughs> Not that my Spanish was any good anyway. <laughs> Although I sometimes try and say otherwise. So I ended up in Brazil, in the south of Brazil, which was, I guess, when you think of Brazil, I have like very romantic ideas of what Brazil might be like. And I think of, you know, Copacabana Beach and I think of amazing looking brown beautiful people playing volleyball, <laughs> sipping pina coladas, dancing to samba. You know, yeah. is that not what you... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but I landed in a place called Santa Maria, which is in the south of Brazil. And just to give you an idea, I always call it the Texas of Brazil. So it's not as glamorous as the ideas in your head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is a landlocked area. There are no beaches. It snows in the winter. Mm -hmm. It's very like agricultural, cowboy culture. You will see horses. They do do rodeo and it's very like macho. They don't do samba. They do folk music. So it's everything that is, it's very kind of European centric and they have like German and Italian influences. And in some pockets, they actually speak German and Italian. So it's more the like Giselle Bunchen, blonde, blue eye look of the Brazilian mm. rather than your Afro-Brazilian, which is probably the image that you had in your mm -hmm. head. So it was quite a big culture shock because I had this fantasy of, you know, people who looked like me. And then it was the blonde, blue-eyed Brazilian that I was like, oh, oh wow, <laughs> this, is, this is something. And then I guess being an English speaker, I was quite ignorant to the fact that, you know, you, I think when we travel, and I, I know I'm generalizing, but I assume that some people are going to speak English. Mm -hmm. But in um, Santa Maria, really was not the case. My one host brother spoke English but his parents didn't speak English and most other people that I interacted with on a day-to-day -day basis didn't speak English luckily 
in my workplace because it was an English language school they did but my uh, manager did not speak English so yeah I was forced to learn Portuguese so yeah it was it was a really really interesting experience because I would say the first month it was like being mute and really wanting to express myself but not having the words to do that because no one could understand me it was an exploration of myself my identity and then just learning about the brazilian culture and the brazilian people which i learned to love even the texan side the, <laughs> you know the um, rio grande do sul culture and i was lucky enough to travel around the country and see the diversity of it which it just it's it's just such a diverse country so going from the south to spending a week in Florianopolis for carnival which is like a an island city that many people haven't heard of but was just great to experience the carnival that we all you know see on television because also something to mention is carnival in Brazil happens in every single city so yes we know the one in Rio but it's just as big everywhere else and then just going to the north my family came to visit me and at the end of my stay and we went to Rio together and you know just experiencing that Afro-Brazilian side was just magical and I and I always say to this day had I been in the north of Brazil I don't know if I ever would have come back to be very <laughs> honest <laughs> because it was just you know there's something about seeing your people wherever you go in the world and there was something about seeing people of African heritage in Brazil and really embracing their identity that was just felt like home it felt like home after that I came back to London and it was it was horrific because <laughs> I'd had the the most magical 10 months of my life I'd like I'd grown into a family that I was living with and I'd met so many great friends who are still my friends today so you know when you're so wrapped up in a place and so wrapped up in the people that you've met that it's hard to leave but mm. I had to finish my last year of university I think I cried like the whole trip home which included a four-hour coach ride to the airport and then like a 15-hour flight oh. <laughs> you know um so yeah it was it was such a, a fantastic experience that I'm so grateful for but Coming back to the UK, I was kind of plotting my next escape. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I mentioned, you know, it was kind of the height of the financial crisis. Graduating in 2010, the opportunities weren't that great. I thought, you know, what better way to start than to go abroad somewhere? My plan was actually to go back to Brazil because I loved it so much. But I just couldn't find any opportunities. So it happened that I'd stumbled upon a graduate intern program, which took place in New York. And funnily enough, one of my best friends, she'd seen the same opportunity. And we were at my mom's house discussing it. And because we thought it was too good to be true and it must be a scam. <laughs> but we said, we're going to apply anyway and see what happens. So cutting that story a bit short we both got accepted into this program and we both flew to New York together and funnily enough so we actually had 
the same flight and everything. We we missed our flight somehow. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time in my life that I've ever missed a flight, and it was when I was going to New York. To New York. <laughs> and and the funny thing is, we were in the airport early, like about four hours early. But we were chilling. We had breakfast. We did all of the stuff. And then we were running. We were running and then we got our terminal wrong. Or then, you know, sometimes you have to take a train to to another terminal. And we're literally sprinting across the terminal. And, um, yeah, and the the words, you know, you you never want to hear these words. But, ma'am, it's too late. Your flight is is gone. (laughs) (laughs) We, We missed our flight. And we had to wait a few hours to the next one. But we eventually arrived in New York, very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. My first kind of corporate, proper corporate experience was in New York, working for an investment bank, UBS. And I was in the HR department um, looking after the graduate scheme for the investment bank, which was great because I kind of got to interact with all the graduates who were similar age to me. That was what led me to New York. And and now I'm back here. Mm. What a journey. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite a journey. And you mentioned earlier as well that you were able to explore your identity along the way. So do you think that there's been a turning point experience that changed the way you identified yourself in the world? Yeah, well, I think coming to London was quite a pivotal point. Growing up in Sydney, I and my twin brother were always at the same school. Well, for primary school, we were at the same school. And we were, for the most part, I was one of four black students at my school and the other two were my mum's good friends children who were mixed race so I'd always been very used to being a minority it was when I came to London when I was like oh oh my gosh like there's there's black people and and just having to understand what it means to be black in that setting um of course I've always been black and I've always been proud to be black but you know it it was different for me going to a school where there was a group of black girls and then kind of navigating that space and like do I hang out with the black girls or do I hang out with the white girls because that's what I'm used to (laughs) and so I actually gravitated to the white girls at first because it was my comfort just trying to adapt to being around your people was very new to me and it took some time actually um it wasn't immediate which you might assume to be the case I would say in terms of exploring my identity coming to London was a big one I think also living in Brazil and New York were pivotal moments as well because I think I had certain assumptions that were not always met like you know the the fantasizing of what it means to be a Brazilian and what it feels like to be in Brazil which was very 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 contrasting to my actual experience and then also being in New York and the cosmopolitan nature of that city and again just getting in touch with my blackness in a different way Mm. Mm. That's really important, though. Like when you have those moments of seeing yourself, what decisions do you make and how you engage with that? And then how does that affect you 
you know, the, those moments mm-hmm. don't really leave you and it kind of like informs what you do and how you move. So just talking about sort of where you're living and how you're being, what is something that you wish you knew about living in the UK before you moved here? I don't think there's anything that I wish I'd known, but I guess one of the interesting points was just about, well, one of the surprising things, and I guess this comes into why I started my brand, but the surprising thing, despite the fact that I came to London and was like, oh my gosh, there's so many black people here and that sense of community, which was beautiful. Like there still wasn't any representation and it was quite disappointing for me to see all these wonderful black people around in my presence, but then not see it reflected in the media or in fashion or, you know, just on Mm. television. It was a little bit confusing for me because of course in Australia growing up as the minority of minorities it was kind of a given that we weren't going to be represented because there were so few of us Mm -hmm. anyway there were a few faces which made it like okay well there's that one person over there and there's one person over there so it wasn't like nobody but then coming to London and it being like nobody it was like oh this is really interesting so yeah I guess it's not necessarily what I wish someone told me but it was just an interesting observation so you mentioned your brand and I just want to transition into talking about your motivation for wanting to work in that industry uh, specifically being an entrepreneur starting your own business and within fashion you studied international business but what kind of motivated you to go specifically in that direction Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess, you know, studying international business, it was always my intention to one day start a business, but I had no idea what industry that would be in. So it was really from my experiences traveling around the world that led me to starting Sheer Chemistry. When I came to London, it was just surprising that, you know, all these people weren't being represented like in mainstream ways or the fact that you had to go to Walthamstow to get your hair Mm -hmm. products. So you all, and we lived at the time in Redbridge, which was borderline Essex. And there was nowhere that you could get hair stuff in that region. So you would have to go Mm -hmm. east to Walthamstow, which wasn't on our doorstep. And so I just found things like that really baffling. And then going to Brazil and me not seeing black people, which I was like, how can I be in Brazil? And there's no black people. I was like, this is crazy. But in the south of Brazil, that's what it's like. And still I'm having to get my mum to ship over hair products in Brazil and I'm not seeing any representation. I actually had to seek out a samba class which I can't even remember how we found it, but I didn't see black people on a day-to-day basis in Brazil where I was living. And so again, it was just like, I can't believe that I'm in Brazil and I can see no representation. And then in New York, you know, it's known as one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. I was really excited to be there. I was really excited to have access to all of these products that I couldn't necessarily have that same access to in London. But then, you know, working in the corporate world, I just wanted to wear tights Mm -hmm. to work. And I was really excited about, okay, well, I can finally go into the shops and I can finally just find my shade of brown and 
it will be happy days (laughs) (laughs) but then you know being confronted with the puzzled face and being like okay well we have black tights and we have barely black tights and I'm like wait 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 (laughs) wait wait this is New York City what is going on and if that had been the first experience and if I hadn't come to London and been shocked if I hadn't gone to Brazil and been shocked and then going to New York and you're telling me (laughs) that I can't get a basic product in my shade so I think it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back a lot of people in London who I speak to they're like oh my gosh this is an issue that I've always thought about or oh my gosh I've never been able to find tights my shade but because I'd had high expectations of everywhere that I went I was just like no this is not okay it's not okay you know being a black woman in New York and just wanting to find something to wear to work on my legs and not feeling self-conscious and not feeling like people are staring at my legs, which I'm sure many of them were when I was wearing beige tights, was something that I thought all of us should have the privilege of having in our drawers and on our legs. So for me, the whole business degree came in and I thought, okay, well, maybe this is something that I can explore and how hard could it possibly be? So I thought, you know, I'm just gonna maybe dip my toe in this whole business thing and start a brand that really caters to this problem and celebrates women of color and our diverse shades of beauty and empowers us to feel confident and gorgeous in our own skin. Wonderful. Yeah, that's good. Who would you say or what would you say has been your biggest inspiration? I would say my mum. And I know that's such a cliche, (laughs) but I guess in terms of just the way that she approached the world at a younger age. So she has always been quite an adventurous person with her and my dad left London when she was pregnant with Kamara (laughs) to go live in um, (laughs) Papua New Guinea, which still to this day many people haven't even heard of but it's just above Australia attached to Indonesia so they went there and then went on to Sydney where they knew nobody to explore career opportunities so yeah I think it's just that kind of notion that anything's possible and anywhere's possible and you belong in any place that you want to go to I think that's really led a lot of my decisions and my ability just to start new things and try new things and go to random places which I'm really grateful yeah. for yeah it definitely helps to see somebody do it before you and to have that as your norm yeah yeah I, I think um it was definitely like a norm and I, I guess you know growing up we also had um exchange students come stay with us so we would have you know people from anywhere from a few weeks to a year or two yeah we had some people stay with us and like properly become part of the family and they were from all over the world like most of them were from southeast asia like japan um china korea but we had people from south america we had people from europe like italy germany and all over even though we didn't necessarily travel extensively like at a very Mm -hmm. young age they came to us so the world came to us and the world came into our home and so I guess being a global citizen was always our norm even though we didn't necessarily leave the country 
because, you know, I, I remember learning bits of Japanese from some of the students that stayed with us and bits of German and bits of, you know, and bits of Chinese, mm. um, which I was studying at primary school. So, yeah, I think it was just having that access to such a diverse group of people at a very young age, because I think that started when we were about five, wow. all the way up into 15 when we left Sydney. So yeah, we literally had hundreds of people in our house growing up, or well, not at one time, of course. course. <laughs> <laughs> Over a period of, um, you know, 10 years. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. What a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah, it really was. And like at the time, it well, I think I always found it a really positive experience. But I guess looking back, it's like, wow, that, that really was an impactful experience and an, an impactful upbringing. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, again, you just consider that your norm when it just happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and um, just knowing about other cultures and cultural sensitivities and other cultural norms and them bringing their friends around and you know it was just I think we learned how to navigate the world in a very natural way from very early on mm, that's beautiful so how would you identify yourself ethnically or culturally because everyone identifies themselves differently and you've had so many different influences in your life if you had so many lived experiences in different cultures so how how do you identify yeah. yourself yeah it's always a bit complex I would say I'm Jamaican Australian British wow. <laughs> <laughs> and an aspiring Brazilian uh, <laughs> yeah yeah definitely I've always thrown that one in just to simplify it so when you know a lot of people are so like you know at the Olympic Games mm -hmm. who do you support and and I support team green and gold yeah. So <laughs> team green and gold. So for those people who don't know, Australian sports colors are always green and gold. Brazil's colors are green and gold. Jamaica's gold, colors yeah. are green and gold. So I support team green and gold. <laughs> if you're not in the green and gold, sorry, it's, you're out. It's not, I'm, I'm, I'm not waving the flag. So no, I'm not waving the British flag at the Olympic games. I'm sorry to say I'm, I'm all for team green and gold. Yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> you know, talking about your inspiration and taking those leaps and bounds to do things differently and just to put yourself out there from your inspiration from your mom. What are some of your proudest professional achievements or even some of your proudest personal achievements? Well, I think, you know, starting sheer chemistry is definitely one of my proudest achievements because, you know, it started off from literally an idea when I was in New York and very young and naive and just to see it now as a fully fledged product that thousands of women have bought in 16 mm. different countries is like that's yeah. amazing and I just think yeah it's and you know it's been a challenging journey to to get there but you know having people reach out to me and tell them how impactful it is to be seen in a brand and and be celebrated by a brand always touches my heart and you know I, I receive emails normally like on a weekly basis of people sending me paragraphs of, of what 
sheer chemistry means to, to them. And so, you know, for me, it's not about tights. It's just about a celebration of identity and a celebration of beauty and empowering women to feel their best mm. self in whatever environment they find themselves in, be it professional, personal, or in performance. So yeah, I think that's definitely one of my proudest achievements. Excellent. And do you have any personal or, or professional mantras that you live by? Well, one of the, my more recent ones, and I have it on my wall above my desk, and it says, um, the world needs what you've got. Mm. And I find that quite encouraging because I guess like everyone, I struggle from you know, lack of confidence sometimes, imposter syndrome sometimes, those self-esteem, insecurities, all of that stuff. But, you know, I think the reality of all of our existence um, is that we have special skills and talents and experiences which the world can benefit from in some way, shape or form. And I think it's our duty mm -hmm. to share that. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, when I see the world needs what you've got and you're thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't send that email because I'm not, I don't know if I'm, I'm good enough or I'm not sure if it's polished enough or I'm not sure if it's perfect enough. It's like, well, actually the world needs what you've got. So you better share it and you mm -hmm. better send that email and you better show up to that meeting and you better, you know, put your name forward for that award because the world needs what you've got. So yeah, it's kind of like a little pep talk to myself. So it's encouraging to see it daily. Yeah, I can imagine. Firstly, I don't know why you uh, lack confidence at any point. <laughs> uh, she is outstanding. Not when you do have those moments, Talia, what do you do to stay motivated to continue to pursue your goals? You know, especially on those days and like, you know, what we're experiencing now, uh, things are a bit different. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. How do you stay motivated? Yeah, well, I think, you know, for me, it's always remembering why I started, which is really to celebrate women who look like me, women of colour, women of all shades of brown, and just to in empower them to feel confident and gorgeous in their own skin. And I guess by doing that, I want them to feel, you know, the well, the names of the products are radiance, confidence and ambition. So I want them to feel their most radiant self, their most confident self, their most mm. ambitious self. And so I remember that in times where I'm like, you know what, I really don't want to. And like this week, you know, which has been a challenging week for all of us, when I don't want to really engage in social media, but I'm like, well, actually people need to hear some sort of encouragement right now and as people who have been championing black people and brown people you know it's it's more of a responsibility now than ever to continue doing that so on those days I just remember my why and remember why I'm doing this and who I'm doing it for which is which are people in my community that I care deeply about and that I believe in and I believe in the potential of our progression and our elevation and so that's what really keeps me motivated but I think at the same time just remembering that rest is also important so you know there are going to be days where I'm not motivated like this week and I didn't do any work I gave myself permission to stop and to 
recharge because that's what I needed. And I think we can't be of service to people and the communities that we lead and protect and empower if we can't do that for ourselves first. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But how did you discover that you needed to do that? Because I know sometimes it can get into a pattern of just working, but how how did you manage to be gracious or patient with yourself yeah how do you continue to do that yeah yeah well I guess it's been a life a life a life (laughs) lesson really and so I don't think there's been any main event that's taught me the importance of being gracious and patient with myself but I think one of the first lessons that I had of this was when I'd just launched your chemistry and you know I guess when you're in the excitement of starting anything new like you kind of throw your whole self at it um and you're like well I don't need to sleep you know that saying like you'll sleep Mm -hmm. when you're dead and and all that stuff and you're like I can do two hours sleep but I guess when you're operating on your own schedule and your own goals like no one knows that you were going to send that email today no one knows. And so if it doesn't go out today, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> and if you don't launch that product, you know, on that date, no one knows. <laughs> so, you know, it, it being a week late in, in accordance to your agenda or a month late or even a year late, that's fine. And so I think sometimes, you know, when I think I well, I know that I'm working in my purpose and walking in my purpose. So, you know, sometimes things take time. And I think it's having that patience with yourself in understanding the journey and the beauty of the journey and the lessons that you need to learn along the journey that reinforce the need to be kind to yourself. And so I guess in the whole being kind and patient with yourself there's some things that I try and always make time for and so you know I had to evaluate like when I just started my business and I was really burnt out and I'd become so consumed in everything that was sheer chemistry that I kind of forgotten Mm. who Talia was I kind of had to reassess like what I like to do as in what Talia likes to do and who Talia is and what does what are my Mm -hmm. hobbies you know and what do I want to spend my time doing when I'm not doing sheer chemistry so it was kind of from that point of exhaustion and burnout that I was like actually these are things that are going to be important for me now and always so I joined a running crew and so Tuesday evenings are set aside for that and even in lockdown we still meet on a zoom call so it's still yeah so like that's my community that's what I'm always going to make time for I'm always going to make time for my family I'm always going to make time for my friends because you know a business businesses come and go but there's some things in your life that will always remain and I think being kind and gracious to yourself in that way will always kind of keep you recharged and keep you motivated and also just not being too hard on yourself because you know things happen and and you face challenges which are not necessarily always your fault but I try to I found like a few years ago that I was being very aggressive with myself and how I spoke to myself so it's been something that I've been consciously working on and talking to myself 
kinder like I would Mm. do with a friend and not being so harsh to myself so yeah I think that's also important like how how you speak to yourself how you speak to yourself speak to yourself (laughs) tt How it has a personal, oh, how does it has she? A personal oh, persona. Oh, like, yeah. yeah, so I call myself Titi because it is just an affectionate yeah. name. You know, no one calls me Titi apart from me. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, Titi. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Titi. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. So, yeah. And so it's like a nice, like, sometimes I have to give myself, you know, a little mm. pep talk or a roughing up, but it comes from a place. Yeah of love yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so, so just thinking about all of those decisions that you make in your career um in your life and how you move forward your motivations and your inspiration what advice would you give someone who would want to become an entrepreneur creating their own business or someone who would just want to have a career in fashion Yeah, well, I would say definitely network. And I know it's such a cliche, like, oh, your network is your net worth and all that stuff. But it's kind of true. (laughs) Um, And especially for someone like myself, um, who didn't have any experience in fashion, and I didn't have any um, contacts in fashion. So for me, it all business so it made sense for me to start going to events where I could meet people who are in fashion and who could help me with certain things whether it was manufacturing marketing retail and things like that like most of the people that helped me along the way I'd met Mm. at an event and I'd spoken to them in person and I guess now in terms of being in lockdown you know is a bit more challenging connecting with people but I I don't think that that's an excuse not to because even during this period I probably attend more events virtually than I do in real life you know and so I'm still going to the panels virtually and I'm still um, having conversations in zoom calls with people and I'm still um, reaching out to people on LinkedIn and people are reaching out to me because I've spoken on this panel I've attended that event and you know so I think there's so many different ways Mm -hmm. now um that you can still engage in any industry that you're interested in. And I think the beauty of now also is that people have a lot more time. So if you do email them or DM them or just send them a message on LinkedIn, I think they're a lot more likely to respond. And I do feel like people are a lot more just compassionate in general. And so even if um, you do reach out to them asking for advice, I think they're a lot more likely to offer their time Um, and offer their advice um, in order to help um, a person who's starting something. I would say that and also just not being afraid to start Mm. as well because I I speak to a lot of people who have great ideas and they have ambitions but they Mm. never start. And I guess, you know, any, any business venture is daunting if you look at it as a huge thing but I guess if you just think of like what could I do today to push mm-hmm. it forward and that 
just to be, you know, let's brainstorm of a name or um, let's um, do a survey with my intended target audience and see if this is something that they want. And if so, how would they like to receive it, you know? So I think there's so much that we could be mm -hmm. doing now with the resources that we have that you don't have to have investment and you don't have to have a team. You can literally get started yeah. today in yeah. a small way. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that about your, your career and your experiences. I've learned something today. So I'm sure our listeners have learned something. I've learned. Your own I've sister learned well. with you has learned something. So the conversation was really, really rich. Before we finish up, we have a little surprise question that we're going to have for all of our okay. guests. So you didn't get a chance to prep because we want your straight shot answer. We, oh, gosh. <laughs> we have to address the elephant in the room. It's the name of the podcast. Which do you prefer? yams or yuca oh wow well the thing is i don't think i've ever okay. tried yuca so yeah so definitely yams okay. i'll go with the yams but i'm i need to try yes. this yuca. okay so for your yams how do you mm -hmm. like them cooked and are you are you an african yam or are you a really a sweet potato yams as we as we call them in in the states definitely yeah. the sweet yeah, because I find the the African ones like they're quite bland. I and thought stodgy. that was just me, <laughs> but you know I'm biased. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like you have to have a lot of sauce and a lot of spice to make it like something substantial. Because I've for a long bit, a long time, I was like, I'm not onto that whole yam thing. But then I tried the sweet versions, and I was like, okay, okay, I can get, I can get into this. So yeah, definitely mm. sweet everything. Okay. Is there a perfect meal that you think includes yams? Maybe with a stew of any kind. Okay. All right. So we've got yams with stew. Courtesy of Talia, I'll look forward to uh, you making that. Okay, let's <laughs> not hold your breath. But um, perhaps, okay. perhaps um, maybe it will be another COVID uh, quarantine yeah. kitchen. Everyone's trying new speak. things. Switch <laughs> up the usual routine and try something new. We'll keep our eye out for that. Well, at this point, we have to say thank you, Talia, for sharing your journey and insight into creative entrepreneurship. We are looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was um, nice to be invited to the table. Of course, you're always you know? welcome. You're welcome. Thanks, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Now it's time for a break. We're going to take a moment to just digest everything Talia has shared with us and come back and indulge a little bit. We'll be right back. So now it's time for dessert. Yes. We're going to talk about the sweet and the savory moment that we're going to take from that conversation with Talia. Me personally, I prefer sweet desserts. Okay. But savory is always good. For us, our sweet moments, our sweet desserts are like our light and fluffy, fun takeaways from the conversation. The ones that just puts a 
nice little smile on your face. Yes. Whether it be like a little lollipop or a biscuit or cookies, as we call it in the States. And then our savory is that nice, deep, rich, something that's just going to stick on the stomach. What's one of your favorite savory dessert? I can do a cheese board. Mm, I can nice. definitely do a cheese board. So that's, nice. that's my selection. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for that conversation, Natalia, it was so good. I actually have two sweet moments. I'm going to be a little greedy today. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> my first sweet moment was when she shared that the world came to her, mm-hmm. came to your family, came to your house. Yeah. You guys had people staying with you from ages 5 to 15. I just felt like that's so incredible. It's such a privilege. I've heard of things like that where people take students in to live with them, but that constant exposure to all those cultures, that's amazing. That's something I definitely will consider raising my own child, just making sure she's always exposed to new things, even if we can't travel. Mm. And then my other sweet one was Team Green and Gold. That was really special. (laughs) It made so much sense. Like, you know, she gets to root for all those countries that have had such a big impact on her life and her identity and never feel like she has to be biased towards one or the other. Now, my question is when both Green and Gold or one of those Green and Golds it's going against the other. Then which one is she really rooting for? Now that's the question, but we don't know. <laughs> what about you? What were your sweet moments? I think my sweet moment was just the excitement she had when she went to Brazil and the fact that she learned that she just didn't have the right expectations of going there. <laughs> so yeah. she learned Spanish. She yeah. needed to learn Portuguese. Or German. <laughs> or German or Italian. That's probably the sweet moment for me. And the savory, the takeaway that I really thought was important to remember was about being gracious to yourself mm. and taking time and and remember those things like the deadlines that nobody knows that you plan to send an email today, but you'll be like, no, the email has to be sent today. <laughs> um, but according to who? So yeah, that was that will be my savory moment. Definitely. Oh, nice. Well, my savory moment, I'm taking it with me every day from now on. It's that mantra, the world needs what you've got. I know for sure I suffer from imposter syndrome all the mm-hmm. time. It's like every day I have a moment where I'm doubting myself and whether I'm really doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I do get the reminders from the people that I work with, but sometimes you don't always get them. Whether I get those reminders or not, I just have to keep remembering that there is something that I can do that the world needs and wouldn't be the same without. So definitely that's going to stick to my stomach. I'm going to keep that with me for a long time. Yeah, that's another good thing to note. Well, that is it for our interview and our episode with Talia Gray. I hope you guys found some sweet and savory moments in that conversation. And of course, let us know what those are. Thanks so much for listening and joining us on our podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. Please do tag us online using the hashtag Yams and Mika. And also follow us on social media at Yams and Mika podcast or on Instagram at Yams and Mika. We look forward to spending time with you again next time. Bye. Bye.